I think there's nothing that I would change about how you end up where you are because every component of it is reflected in your being. But I think the opportunity to introspect and to really reflect on how you react to the world and how the world reacts to you helps you just be a better part of it. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. This afternoon, I am lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Patrick Woodard. Dr. Woodard, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Long time coming. Patrick, for those of our listeners who who may not be familiar with you, I know you have a fairly renowned social presence, but could you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? I'm lucky enough to be the Chief Healthcare Information Officer for Monument Health. We're based in Western South Dakota. We care for patients from vast region and large rural area. As the Chief Healthcare Information Officer, I lead our IT teams or work very closely with our executive leadership team to really figure out how we can use technology to bring humanity back into healthcare and care for people wherever they are, whether that's rural community two hours outside of the next closest town of any size or in Rapid City where we are in a major trauma center. So a really nice blend of opportunities to care for folks regardless of their status and how close they are to what they consider good healthcare. Great to have you on and excited to have another executive for Monument Health. We had Dr. Stephanie Lair on about a half a year ago or so, and and so our listeners are somewhat familiar with Monument, but I think some things have changed since then and great organization. So we're excited to getting up to speed on, on what you guys are up to. And we'd like to start our episode, though, with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today. I think it's listen to your clinicians, most of all. I have the benefit of being a physician by background, so it helps that I already speak the language. Being fluent in both the clinical side and the technical side helps when you're trying to move something forward, but more than being able to speak the language is being able to listen to it. Your clinicians are the ones who are at the front lines. They're the ones who are with patients all day, and that can be nurses, it can be case managers, it can be physicians any specialty. And the reality is people come to work every day to do 
a great job and they want things to be easy in a way that technology isn't getting in the way. And even the most kind of venom complaint still has a validity in there somewhere. Being able to translate something that is frustration into a way for us to be able to solve a real problem that is interfering with our ability as physicians, as caregivers, as nurses to be able to come in and care for patients is really the reward of my job and the thing that I think is most critical for anybody working for a health system or with a health system to do is to really listen to what those frontline folks are saying because they know it a lot better than we do. We're not doing it every day. They are. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think we had this conversation a little bit ago and doing that has changed my experience too, really spending time with the clinicians and the nursing. I was a classic technologist. Obviously, I'm not a doctor, but the more that we aligned ourselves with the clinical team, the more compassion that we had, the more understanding. So great advice to start the episode. Patrick, actually, before we get into your new role at Monument, let's just talk a little bit about you as an executive. How did you start out and, and how did you get to the point that you're at today in your career? Like most clinicians, I think I got there by mistake. I'm very happy to be here, but it was not something that I thought when I got through medical school and I'm 23 years old, that this is what I would end up wanting to do or, or doing every day. I initially had intended to be a violinist. And so by changing roles and deciding to go to medical school, there was always a bit of, well, there's opportunity to do something else besides medicine. I still play violin at a nice kind of change of pace. The catalyst, I think, for thinking about medicine as a part of my identity, but not necessarily the whole identity really happened when I was in college. I had a really good professor who encouraged science students to think of health or science policy as part of your role as a professional. And to the extent that we, as part of the class, had to get something passed through Congress, which is a little bit daunting when you're a 21-year-old college student, 22-year-old college student. But it you saw in that the ability to make huge change for the better with a few words. So for me, what I saw in that and thinking about medical school and policy was how can I use health policy to improve the way that we deliver healthcare across the country? I took some time and did a healthcare policy fellowship with the American Medical Association in DC during med school, did my medicine residency in DC as well, thinking that would be something that I did health, uh, health policy would be the, the line of my career. And during residency, we had a bad outcome, unfortunately, in which a patient passed away and it was a preventable death. Like many of those BUC and the Institute of Medicine report, the famous one from the 90s around quality, the report that we saw a couple of years back about preventable medical errors and really recognizing that technology can play a role in that. So I dusted off some coding and programming skills that I had from my days as troublesome youth and uh, wrote an application that allowed for those handoffs that we do, which are really a, a very high risk scenario to be de-risked a bit, providing some safety checks and that kind of thing. And uh, turned that into a company that I ran for several years that sold that in 2016. So it was nice to be able to move my view of policy, being able to translate the way we work as clinicians into something that you can have a broader impact and seeing that same kind of impact in technology, recognizing that by writing some code and installing some software or managing the technology that we use every day, you can have a huge impact in the way that we care for patients as clinicians and being able to effectively sit at, you don't have to convince anybody, hundreds of thousands of bedsides at the same time, whereas I can only go into one hospital room at a time. I can only be in one 
clinic exam room at a time. So the idea of being able to extend that reach is really what attracted me to health tech as a career or a passion. And so moving that from the vendor side into the health system side was a challenge in that it was just so much different. The way the health system functions is opaque and you see a little bit of how it works from the outside. You see very little of it as a physician and there's a fairly large learning curve and I've been fortunate enough to have very good mentors along my career who helped me to grow into it in a way that was a good learning experience. So it was a long arc, but I ended up becoming a chief medical information officer for a health system, moved into a chief digital officer role, and then currently is the chief healthcare information officer. Well, and I, I identify with that as a technologist that specializes in healthcare, being able to play even a small role in impacting the experience of patients in a given uh, community or the tools that caregivers have access to to better deliver care at scale is super exciting to me. So just kudos on that mission. Very interesting journey. Patrick, what would you say was one of the most important things that you've learned over the course of, of your career? I think there was a moment that really marked that evolution between someone who's young and passionate and wants to get something done and recognizing there's a way to be more effective. And it, I know exactly when it was. And it was when I had very impassionately argued against a contract the company was about to sign. I felt that it was not the best choice for the organization at the time. And I was adamant about it and CC'd too many people on an email that was too long. And it was a good learning opportunity. My boss at the time was the chief medical officer, and he was a very influential person in my own development. And he could have fired me, but he didn't. And I did get called to the principal's office, and he just said, let me just help you reflect on ways that might be more useful. And so we talked about it. It was easy for me to realize the mistake I had made. Sometimes you might think you're right, and sometimes you might even be right, but pointing out your boss's error or perceived error in front of all of his peers and his boss probably isn't the best way to go about it. And in retrospect, I probably still was right, but sometimes you just have to know which battle to pick, and you don't want to be out there kind of pigeon flying over everybody if you want it to be successful. And so I think that was a turning point in the way that I managed how to influence a decision. And I think the thing that I've learned as an executive is that you very rarely should be making a decision yourself, but many times you have a piece of information that a lot of other folks may not have. And it's important to share that and still be able to get behind the decision that an organization is making. Because the other decision makers also have pieces of information that you may not have. Taking all of those things into context is important. And then part two of that is which are the battles that you really want to win and which are the battles that may have an impact but aren't worth it because there's a certain amount of goodwill that you want to retain in your role and save it for the things that really matter. I had a CEO once who told me that he probably only made five important decisions a year. And at the time, I thought that was absurd. This is a guy who's making a lot of money running a big health system, and surely he must do important things all day, every day. 
And I think the more time I've spent thinking about that, I think there's probably some truth to that in that, not that there aren't a hundred decisions that we all make every day, but how many of them are the ones that really bend the arc of company or an organization? And those are the ones that really matter. I think being able to understand and recognize which those are, and then put the right kind of effort into those and not into the others is probably the biggest lesson that I learned over that period of time. It really changed the way that I work with peers and collaborate, frankly, a lot better without as much friction. I mean, you mentioned a lot of great stuff there. It got me thinking about our, some of my experiences with healthcare organizations and just other organizations that are resistant to change and how important it is to really spend the time to enroll people in new ideas, right? Because as a technologist, right, I could come from that place of, well, I've done this before. I know it works, right? Here's the case study. Let's go. These are the parts. We just got to put them together. But it's more, more complicated than that. This is a people business, really, healthcare. And sometimes it's funny. Sometimes I'll find in healthcare, some of the most resistant people to change is actually IT. They like what they do. It's the lights are on. Nothing's broken. Let's just hunker down. And the language that I find myself using often is help me understand. Help me understand X, right? And getting people talking about and then slowly try to enroll them in the possibilities. And I've sent some emails like that too. So I just, I chuckled when you said that. There's an old Deming quote that the system is perfectly built for the outcomes that it achieves or the results that it achieves. And I think there's a lot to that in recognizing that the way things are built are there for a reason. It may not be a good reason, but there is a reason and helping people jump to what you said said, talk about the reasons why. And a lot of times people will come to the conclusion on their own. There's no, you don't have to convince anybody. Maybe that we just have not really thought about it. It goes back to the kind of lean principle of why, you know, asking why five times, which has, is not really designed to challenge people in an antagonistic way, but really designed to challenge people in a way of let's find out. We probably haven't thought about the way, the reason things are the way they are in many cases. If we do think about it now more compelled to potentially change it because you discover the reason it is the way it is because nobody ever asked that question before. Right. We're at almost like now I'm thinking of myself as like a technology therapist where like you mentioned the lean or like the agile principle, like setting context and then letting the team come to the context, like the same thing in enrolling folks. It's let me paint the picture and let people yet slowly arrive there or hopefully not too slowly, but arrive there at themselves because we need to get there somehow. Help me get and educate too. Some people don't, they just don't know what they don't know. So not so much how am I telling them what to do, but just educating them on what's possible now, right? Because things are evolving so quickly as we go. But I think it goes back to that the people want to come in and do a good job every day. They may just not know that there's a better way to do it and helping them to see that and then get there out of their own, really. What about a time, Patrick? Is there a time that sticks out in your mind as a time that project failed or that you were challenged, but it stuck at, out in your mind as a, a catalyst for growth? I think there was a time when we really wanted to move everybody onto online scheduling of their case procedures, right? So if they have a surgical case that they want to do at our hospital, the way that they did it then was that they would have their medical assistant fax over a OR slot request, and then the schedulers would 
often call them back with the request and offer a couple of different times. Kind of inefficient. You have a lot of folks on both sides who are touching the record, whether that be a fax or a phone call or faxing over an HPI or an HMP for the case and, and all that kind of stuff. And so seeing an opportunity to move that to fully electronic case request seemed on its face like a win, certainly for us, the health system, because then we have to have this, we're enabling our schedulers to be more efficient. And then part two of that, in theory, having surgeons offices be more efficient as well, because there's less back and forth between taxes. And talks. I think the challenge there was we didn't do a really good job of getting the surgeons who largely didn't work for us. They were independent groups on board with that first and recognizing that there were each office of which there were dozens, if not hundreds would have to change their workflow in their own office. And by the way, because they aren't employed by us, have no real incentive to change anything unless they believe that they should change it. So we went through a lot of effort to do the build and work things through on our own internal side with the way that our schedulers were going to do it, had a nice kind of performa for how much we were going to be able to save and through attrition, be able to reduce cost to to e-cost. And it was a spectacular failure. We had so many angry surgeons, rightfully so, who are like, well, now you want me to log into your EMR and do your work for you and well, we like scheduling this way, I just tell my MA and it's not hard for me at all, which is true, <laughs> right? If I just open the door and say, hey, John, can I get Miss Johnson scheduled for an appendectomy next Tuesday? That's the end of the conversation for the surgeon, right? Without recognizing that all this other stuff is happening out of the back end. I think that would have been a difficult project, regardless if we started with understanding what folks are doing in their offices anyway like really truly understanding it and trying to change and helping the surgeons who in many cases are the business owner and the primary stakeholder there to understand their own inefficiencies probably would have been a better way to start with it but we came to it from a little too heavy-handed approach of well this is what we're going to do and this is the day we're going to do it not necessarily respecting that surgeons themselves have their own financial interest and or the way that it works their own personal workflow that they appreciate and that kind of thing. So it really was a great example of making sure that you thought through the change management part of it, regardless of the technical elements involved. And really, I think goes to what you said about knowing there's a better way, but then not really recognizing all of the reasons the current system is functional in a way. I mean, cases are getting scheduled all the time. It's not like we weren't able to schedule a case. Being able to move from something that you see is maybe inefficient to something that is actually beneficial to all of the parties involved isn't necessarily easy as just turning on a new switch. There's a lot of that helping people to understand why you would want to make a change and being willing to accept and not blink too. I mean, we probably could have just carried on if we wanted to and probably forced it through, irritating people along the way and just recognizing that was part of it. And then maybe a year from now, people will forget. But you also, we would have had to not blink either. We just had to stick to it and go to it. But I'm not sure there's a lot of people with that level of stamina to put up with that many annoyed doctors and nor should they be. I mean, they're critical to the delivery of healthcare. They are critical to their own patients. And the idea is that really health systems and physicians, independent ones as well, are having an aligned mission. It's to take care of people. I think a lot of times we forget that we really do have the same goal in mind. We want to get people healthy. We want to keep people healthy. We want to keep them out of the hospital. We want to have them be go on about their lives. And I think a lot of times we get stuck into 
couple of smaller items that we might disagree on how to get there. But really the idea there is really that we do have the same mission. Let's figure out how we can collaborate to do it. My most difficult time was when we were like dealing with the docs that only see patients from three to four 30 on Thursdays and only treat like this part of the arm and academic health systems when I'm trying to figure that out. But it just, what it brings up for me is like the fact that different groups of people are going to have different priorities, just like different people, individuals are going to have different priorities. So it goes back to what you said before about really trying to understand where they're coming from. And that's been my experience too, cross specialties, right? Like neurosurgery is going to have different priorities for scheduling and patient handling and all of that than a group that's geared towards dealing with the elderly, right? And like when I'm doing these initiatives that impact everyone, how am I taking the time to translate the value into a language that they can get behind and appreciate? It's something that I learned the hard way for sure. I think there are a lot of analogies between healthcare and other industries, whether that be the airline industry or a service industry like hoteling or restaurants and wondering why it's so much more difficult in healthcare to reach. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. I think the challenge is that to your point, we think of healthcare as a system, but it's really a system of a bunch of complex systems, right? If you're a cancer patient, there is no such thing as cancer. There are hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of different types of cancer that we lump into cancer and then wonder why it's difficult to solve that problem. It's the same with the number of specialties that we manage, the number of diseases that each specialty manages, and each one of those is an individual person's story. And when we're trying to create a system that works for all of them, we might get to 60% or if we're lucky, maybe 80%. And then we're still leaving 20% of the people out who each one of them is its own edge case that requires its own special way to solve. And we do want to be able to do it in a way that respects that individual story and their humanity because it's stressful and scary for everybody when it's happening to them. And you forget that you're in one little system that's part of a bigger system that all together makes up what we call healthcare. So Patrick, I want to talk a little bit more now about your experience at Monument. Before we do, we'd just like to ask about your favorite book or literary piece that either you've read recently or all time, something that spoke to you, your choice. I have to always go back to the Lean Startup, Eric Ries. I read it early in my own startup days, and it was influential, I think, on how I thought about delivering product and how to manage what your users' expectations are, and then build and grow on that. I've recommended it to almost anybody who will listen just because it really pushes more on the lean aspects that I think health systems in particular tend to forget. We have a good lean program here, actually. It's a lot of folks have been green belt, yellow belt certified. It's really powerful in terms of just the way that it helps us think as, it, as an organization. But being able to really think in that a lean manner enables you to be maybe more okay with things that are in that kind of MVP type territory and acknowledging that perfect is the enemy of good and we're okay delivering maybe a minimal viable product for a small group of users, acknowledging that this is an iterative aspect of things and nothing has to be perfect. So I think it was very influential in the way that I think about getting a new process started, a new project off the ground, and as long as we're also promising ourselves that we will do the iterative aspect afterwards. So I think that I can't recommend that book enough. He also has a follow-up to that yeah, that's more designed about 
being an entrepreneur. So if you're already in a big company and you're not running a startup, how to still keep that startup mindset while you're in a bigger corporation, which I think is also helpful as well. The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Can't recommend it enough. I'm like trying to remember if I, I've read that or not. So if I don't remember, I must not have. So I got to check that out for sure. I love those Weird principles reading. too, because I mean, what you just described is at the root of all innovation. And I think it's important to an entrepreneur or an executive in a, a health system. I mean, it's crucial more now than ever. Creating that culture of we don't need perfection. We need, and my coach makes the distinction always to me, mistakes of sloth versus mistakes of ambition. Now more than ever, people, my experience is that we need to move. We need to move forward, right? We need that forward momentum. We need to measure, right, as we go, and we need to incorporate feedback and then keep it moving. We need to do so in a controlled manner where we're not impacting the lives of patients, obviously. For sure. You want to move fast, but not break things. But you also, I think in that measurement aspect, I think is also really important. There's a data component to everything that we do. And I think a lot of times just in healthcare, we don't necessarily think in advance, what is the exact outcome that we're looking for and how can we demonstrate that has been achieved? And I think we still not as health system, but as healthcare as a system overall, probably should think more about how can you do A-B testing in a way that is not dangerous, but also enables us to test quality initiatives and move things forward in a way that it recognizes that of the hundreds of thousands of patient interactions that we have every year, some of them are better than others and we'd like them all to be better. So how do we make sure that we're figuring out that way and testing and improving continuously? So Patrick, let's talk a little bit more about Chief Health Information Officer at Monument Health. What's your vision for IT and digital as it's derived from the overall mission of the organization? And maybe what are some of the key initiatives that you're focused on that kind of roll up to that? I see it as really foundational. I think there is a story that I like to tell, which is that 100 years ago, companies would employ CEOs or chief electrical officers because they were trying to figure out what to do with this relatively new technology, how to integrate it into their factories and get rid of steam engines and replace them with electric engines. But they didn't have anybody who really knew how that worked. Today, electricity is so foundational that maybe nobody except I suppose an energy producer has a chief electrical officer. And we may see that 100 years from now, we don't have chief information officers either because the technology that we have so long taken for granted is something that we now use, that we all know how to use, and that the foundational components of it are still there now, which is not to say that companies don't still have electricians that they have to have. If they have facility folks that people know how to do it, you're still going to have network engineers and people who are dealing with infrastructure and replacing desktop computers, those kind of things. Those will be there as long as we have those types of devices. But I would love to see a world in which we have the next iteration of technology, whether that be AI or something that hasn't even come around the bend yet, as that part that we're trying to figure out how to use instead of just the foundational aspects. But to get there, we have to make it so foundational that it works all the time. When I walk in a room and I flip a light switch and the lights come on, I don't think anything about it. But when I walk in a room, even if I just walk into a conference room, I'm still trying to figure out how does this particular machine work or how can I share my screen on this one? Or, oh, well, this meeting's on Zoom, but my last one is on Teams. These are the things that aren't foundational yet. We're getting closer. <laughs> and I think as generations enter the workforce who have just grown up with it, it'll become a little bit easier, but we'll still have some level of that. And then you add the complexity of something like an electronic medical record on top of it. I also like to ask people if they think it's harder to drive a car or to use an EMR 
And consistently they say that it's harder to use the EMR, but you have to go take a driver's test. You have to go pay your fee and get your driver's license to use the car. And the EMR is just as dangerous potentially as a car if you don't know how to use it properly. So how do we transform the way that we're providing tools that are safe and effective that maybe you don't need to go get a driver's test to use EMR, but it's as useful as possible in a way that doesn't disrupt the way that people interact, right? A physician sitting down in an exam room with a patient or or submitting a patient to the hospital, which is a long way of saying, I think this year and the next couple of years are really about driving more to those foundational elements that allow us to iterate even faster after we have demonstrated that we have a really strong foundation. I'm lucky that I was able to inherit really good systems, but we've also been, so we're on Epic, which is a great EMR, but we've been on it for about five years. And so the new has worn off and it's the kind of time where we need to make sure that we're really driving the efficiency out of it. Or how are we making sure that people who want to be able to schedule online are able to schedule anything that they want online? How are we maybe making sure that we're identifying those patients who are likely to be admitted from the ED early enough so that we can reserve a bed for them and improve our hospital efficiency? It's really foundational, I think, which is not to say we're not doing some kind of advanced stuff. We're working in, we're doing a couple of AI pilots at things with Gen AI and LLM, which are important too, but those are, I think, our test cases and everything else still needs to be functional and foundational. So we have three major initiatives this year. One of them is really around aligning everything that we do to our organizational strategy so that we don't get distracted. We're really driving on data and analytics as a function of enterprise intelligence and something that becomes part of everybody's daily lexicon, including data literacy and how do I work with it at every level of leadership. And then the last is really driving that optimization of what we call squeezing the stone, making sure that everything that we can get out of our expensive tools, we're able to get. What would you say the things are standing in your way of that or, or maybe some of the biggest challenges that are facing uh, the organization today? I think it's really around focus, right? There's so much that we're in a dozens of locations. I don't even know how many we have all over the place. And everybody wants to improve the way that they're delivering care, regardless of where they are. And we can do a hundred little things or one big thing, and we have to decide which of those is going to have a bigger impact on a bigger scale for all of the people who rely on us to be here. We're really the only health system in the region. So we're really obligated to provide a high level and high quality of care, regardless of where those folks are coming from. And so making sure that I stay focused, that my team stays focused, and we're really focused on the work that has a a big long-term impact is so much more impactful than a hundred small projects, which really goes to that kind of aligning things to strategy, focusing on what are the things that we said we would do as an organization, and then being able to move those forward and in a way that has that level of focus. That's probably the biggest challenge is helping people to see that they should still try to continuously improve that and that for the projects that require multiple teams, whether that be IT or IT and finance or facilities and those kind of things, we may be doing fewer, but bigger and more impactful projects. And it doesn't mean that their work is less important. It just means that it's trying to impact everybody and have a future, a larger impact for really everybody. I was interested when you were talking about some of the kind of next gen things that are you're piloting or, or just have going on as you kind of get the table stakes type things that are thwarted. You mentioned like large language models, some generative AI stuff, anything you can tease as to some of the kind of exciting, innovative stuff that you guys are up to in the background? Yeah, I'd say some of it, let's just say not every note that you may receive from your doctor may have been written by your doctor. 
Not that a doctor didn't review it. We still are keeping a human in the loop. We don't want robotic medicine. We still want humanity to be part of it. But we also recognize that over the course of the pandemic, people have migrated to sending more messages to our doctors. They're getting overwhelmed. So how do we help them be successful and still remain compassionate? And I don't know if you saw it, but there was a nice study that was done out in the spring that compared people's responsiveness to machine-written response to a medical question versus that of a physician. And by a wide margin, people preferred that written by a large language model. And a lot of it had to do with compassion and language, speaking in a language that a person who's not a physician can understand. And frankly, the chat bot did it better. We shouldn't really be that surprised by it. The chat bot doesn't have another patient to see in 15 minutes, <laughs> right? So I think if we're able to bring that kind of compassion and readability into the world where we also still have physicians providing the clinical guidance to it is a way that we can get the best of both worlds. And then of course, some of the other stuff around reading films and those kind of things are always areas that we like to be keeping our eye on as those types of tools develop. Yeah, super exciting stuff. So Patrick, a couple last questions for you. One would be with an understanding that you don't have a crystal ball. Where do you see the healthcare industry going in the future over the next number of years? And what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? I think what we're seeing around M&A activity will be continued to really just because of continued financial pressures on organizations of certain sizes. I think what's interesting is that the last couple of years have demonstrated that size doesn't necessarily bring the efficiencies that people are hoping to see, which is, I think, true across a lot of industries. How many acquisitions or mergers are failures in by the measure that they were laying out at the outcome? If you look at big some of the bigger systems like Providence and Cloud Spirit, they posted huge losses over the last couple of years, just which is indicative of the pressure to get in the health systems altogether. I think one of the other challenges that we all look at is just rising cost across all components of the supply chain, including a software supply chain, which I think we'll need to figure out how to rein in. And we may be able to do that by economies of scale. So I think there's a lot of pressure to figure out ways to be better negotiators or increase purchasing power to reduce some of that expense in that way. So I think they'll see a lot of that and a move towards maybe more consolidation of services. So fewer specialty services in rural areas. Our goal is to continue to provide high quality care and as much as possible at home. So our goal is our patients to remain and to continue to provide as many services as possible to the folks of the region. And then also recognizing that we probably don't need like a pediatric cardiac oncologist because there aren't that many. So recognizing what we also don't want to be good at, recognizing the things that we just don't have the volume and smart and thoughtful about how we think about the business lines that we run. And then I think as that M&A activity occurs, really figuring out how to still provide good care that's community-based. Because of the nature of healthcare, it's a very personal business. And although the business of healthcare may still need to be a business in that people need to be able to keep the doors open, I think it's important to still recognize that the people are local. They want to see people who feel local, and they want to feel like they're not having to drive around or fly around the country just to receive care that they could or should receive at home. And I think that's the broad view of it from my chair. So final question, Patrick, I'd like to ask if you could go back 5, 10, even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Meditate more. 
the things that you think matter don't as much and the things that you don't think will matter might matter more and you can't tease them out unless you really are reflective on it. So I think that's probably the advice I would give. I think there's nothing that I would change about how you end up where you are because every component of it is reflected in your being. But I think the opportunity to introspect and to really reflect on how you react to the world and how the world reacts to you helps you just be a better part of it. So I think that's the thing that I would go back and say. My younger self could have used that advice too. So Patrick, it was so great having you on today. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's been my pleasure. Always appreciate chatting with you. Yeah, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.